Okay, folks, welcome back to... We're going to dive in, and Catherine has our devotional. Okay. So I will open our study of John by saying that John is not my favorite gospel. I am more of a Matthew and Luke person. Um, I'm comfortable hearing Jesus teach and preach about the kingdom of heaven and how we should live our lives to make things here on earth more like God's kingdom. My first memories of really identifying as Christian come from reading the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and that's still some of my favorite scripture. And I am less comfortable hearing Jesus teach about who he is in John, about his divinity and the word and being of God and from God and son of God. So with that context, I wanted to lift up a couple of verses that I was struck by this week that get a little less press than 316, specifically uh, chapter 6, verses 60 and 66. These verses follow Jesus' somewhat graphic description of the Eucharist, where he's talking about um, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they describe the response of those who were listening. So verse 60 when many disciples, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? And then in verse 66, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. And these aren't words of the Pharisees who are trying to trick Jesus into doing or saying something wrong. These were followers, people who were listening and hearing Jesus's words and deciding they were too much to believe. And I am struck by these clear statements of doubt because I struggle with doubt. When I think about how I might characterize my own faith, I would say that it began with a flicker of belief that I have fanned into a steady flame through discipline and practice and open-mindedness. And since I was a kid when I read scripture, mostly Matthew and Luke, um, it felt deeply true and right to me, but I was still full of doubt. Uh, I relate deeply to the way Herod feels about John the Baptist. Uh, In the scripture it says, when he heard him, when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. Uh, Jesus as teacher and preacher in Matthew and Luke is easy for me. I like to listen to it. Uh, Jesus and John, telling us he is the resurrection and the life, the bread of life, the gate for the sheep, is harder, and I am often greatly perplexed. I have what I think is a healthy faith, but I have to work at it, and some days are harder than others. So when I hear the disciples saying, this teaching is difficult, who can accept it? I think, yes, thank you. <laughs> like, like, this is difficult. Um, just as we talked about identifying with the bungling disciples of Mark, I identify with the struggling disciples of John. And I appreciate that our scriptures read and studied by millions of people over thousands of years, include words like, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? For some, faith is easy, but I expect for many of us it is a challenge, and I value the acknowledgement of that challenge, that the scripture tells us we are not alone in this. So let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you loved this world enough to give your only Son, so that everyone who believes in him and in you may not perish but have eternal life. 
And you are, we are also grateful that you're with us in our doubt when we find your words difficult and hard to accept. We are grateful that when we doubt, you remind us that through you, all things are possible, including faith. Amen. So thank you all for being here. I know that the uh, gnats have caused many of us to spend the weekend in bed, <laughs> either out of exhaustion or <laughs> or mourning, yes, and uh, I uh, will see what happens so tonight, but again, thank you all for being here. It does really help when you, when you email me uh, ahead of time, because I do arrange the tables a little bit. Richard is home studying Greek again, so we've only got, if you two can get along, we'll let you stay at the same table, okay, and have your discussion, so, but, uh, and I want, on John, it's, it was really interesting to hear Catherine's perspective. I mean, that's, that's really terrific. Uh, I, I want us to, to walk through it, and I've, I've added an, an addendum there to you, which I have, have at times, Distributed. I'm glad I've done that today, and I do want us to to spend some time on that today. And that is that is how so much of of John is sort of the seed of of Western anti-Semitism, and um, and we'll talk about that as well, which I thought might be why you would go there, but but that's another issue with the Gospel of John. But having said that, um, I'm just going to follow along here on the on the presentation, um, and we'll do a lot about the big picture of John today and then talk about the prologue. But um, having having listened to Catherine and acknowledged that, that it is a, a challenging book, um, and I'll, I'll give this story. The reason it's challenging for me, some of you have heard this story before, but when I was in seminary, I worked at a Presbyterian church way out in Brooklyn and in the, in the, in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn, which is actually where the, the uh, John Travolta movie uh, was filmed at that time. What's... What was Saturday, the, night Saturday Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, I did. I don't have the moves, but there were actually kids in my youth group that were walk-ons in that movie, so it was kind of cool at the at the time. But the minister went out of town, and and I got to preach two Sundays in a row in August, and it was a non-air-conditioned sanctuary, and I preached on um, the raising of Lazarus, which when you preach from John, it's difficult because the stories are so long. I mean, the scripture readings are long, and then, you know, a narrative sermon is long, too. And it was the first time in preaching that I could tell that I really had the congregation. And it was just, you know, I was just telling the story, but somehow it, you just had this experience of, wow, this, you know, this can really be a powerful thing. And so I thought I would extend it the next week. No, 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 I'm sorry. I did that on Ezekiel's Dry Bones that Sunday. And then the next Sunday, I thought, well, well I'll do this again. I'll do the raising of Lazarus, and it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> I mean, just as I had everybody one week, the next week I could tell it was just awful. So I've always had this, you know, I've been scarred by John at, at an early age. But and he, he isn't one of my favorite gospels. But I hope we can can for different reasons. You've added a good perspective. So having said that. Um, Fred Craddock, who I'm following in most of this handout today, um, says that John is the is the gospel that is most loved by the church's membership. And I don't know what he bases that on other than I would I trust his judgment. Uh, and you think about these phrases that, that are part of our culture and our and our Christian lexicon, if not our 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 
secular lexicon, but the phrase, for God so loved the world, let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, It's a great funeral verse. I am the resurrection and the life. A new commandment I give you. By this you shall know that you are my disciples. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I pray, Father, that they may be one, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, The many mansions passage that we often read at funerals is is also from the Gospel of John. in the popular mind, Christ is is more immediate and available in John, um, even though it's he's more of a heavenly figure. Um, and yet, the the portrait of Christ in John is dangerously close to the heresy that argues that the divine Son did not really become human, but just seemed to be so. Um, that it's given rise to that strand of thinking in theology that that the church has, as at the Nicene Creed and, and the Apostles' Creed, but especially the Nicene Creed, said no to uh, by saying, you know, Jesus Christ is uh, is fully human and fully divine, and because in John he can come across as being more divine than human. Although um, there are places, you know, as you know, where he's very human. And so the question in John is, is there sufficient continuity between the Christ as depicted in this gospel and the historical human Jesus of Nazareth? That's that's the theological question that floats over John. Um, In terms of John, it's it's interesting to compare John with the other... uh, other Gospels, because they obviously are dealing with much of the same subject matter, but the stories and the accounts take on a really different life of their own in John, particularly compared with with Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So we have John the Baptist in John, um, but but the accounts of him are different. Uh, Jesus goes to Galilee in John as he does... uh, in the other Gospels, he feeds the multitudes. He walks on water. There's a miraculous catch of fish. There's Peter's confession. There are the characters of Martha and Mary, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and the Last Supper with his disciples. All of these things appear in all four Gospels. Uh, but there are many things about John that are entirely different from the other three. Um, there are no exorcisms. There's no, you know... Legion tumbling over the cliffs, uh, having been exercised. There are no parables in John. As famous as the parables of Jesus are, there are none in John. There's nothing like the Sermon on the Mount, this sort of compendium of ethical teaching. Uh, there's the Messianic secret doesn't exist in John. Jesus is who he is from the beginning and is proud to claim it. Uh, there's no... Uh, Real temptation in John. He was tempted in the wilderness and no um, struggle in Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. And there are materials in John that do not appear in any of the other Gospels. The wedding feast at Cana, which is often a favorite story. Uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. The woman at the well. The healing by the pool of Bethsaida and the, the famous previously mentioned raising of Lazarus, which is the long one of the longest stories in the Bible, but it does have that shortest verse, Jesus wept. 
which we were taught as children. What's the shortest verse of the Bible? Jesus wept. Of course, in RSV, I think it's Jesus began to weep. You know, they just spread everything out. So just ruins everything. But I remember that from Sunday school, Jesus wept. Um, and in, in a, a pretty interesting uh, development in in terms of a different arrangement is if you'll recall, you read this week in the Gospel of John, Jesus cleanses the temple, drives the money changers out of the temple very early in John. It's like chapter 3, I think, 3 or 4, maybe even sooner than that. And it's that which triggers the opposition to him in John. That event turns happens way later in the other three Gospels. It's really part of almost him going to Jerusalem, you know, for the last the last uh, week of his life. So it's placed differently in the Gospel of John. In in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist and, and Jesus are almost two sort of equal or concurrent figures. I once heard Craddock say that these early, early, uh, Jews who encountered them had two preachers they could choose from. One was John the Baptist and one was Jesus. And it, and it was uh, John's more prominent and equal in that regard, or seems to have had more of a following. And then uh, the idea that Jesus, uh, you know, that his ministry lasted three years actually comes from John, which is interesting because it's the least uh, historically minded of the Gospels. And, and yet you could read, because in the other Gospels he only goes to Jerusalem once, you can make the case that his ministry just lasted a year. But in John, he goes to Jerusalem three times, and that's where we get the common, the commonly accepted idea that Jesus ministered for three years before his death. Uh, that actually comes from John. Um, but I think, as, as Catherine alluded, um, there are... Uh, the portrait of Christ in John is 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 just different. I mean, it's fleshed out in an entirely different way, or I might say it's spiritualized out in an entirely different way. And we do, almost all of the scholars believe that John was the last gospel written, and some of them place it as late as 120 um, A.D., or in the Common Era. Uh, some as early as 90, but it was, if you know, if Mark wrote in the 60s and Luke and Luke and Matthew in the 70s, John is clearly almost a generation later, and and perhaps even two. Uh, but in John, Jesus is a historical figure. He's located in time and place. He has a mother and friends. He eats and drinks. He gets weary and thirsty, he bleeds, and he dies. So these are aspects of his humanity that, that despite the spiritual emphasis of John, are, are clear in John. But the reality is that these descriptions recede behind the stronger image of Jesus being from above, someone who is eternally at home with God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, from in the beginning, became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. There is this very strong emphasis that Jesus is this figure that comes from heaven, 
spends a specified amount of time on earth and returns to heaven and, and is really in fully full control of his destiny all the way through. Uh, the, the very famous verse, which I, I say over and over, um, that you know we see at the in the end zone of every football game from high school through the NFL of John 3:16 uh, no yeah 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 that's what we see the verse i'm thinking of is you um, you must be born again that phrase comes from John and that's 3 it's somewhere in there isn't it like 317 or something? Or I, yeah, I can't believe I'm blanking on the numbers. But anyway, the phrase, you must be born again, is, is probably the most influential verse used by, by Protestants, Protestants of all denominations who, who believe it is their task as Protestants to invite people to convert or whose experience of Christ is such that it is a dramatic and identifiable change, conversion experience on their part, which they can usually name the date and the time and the place. You must be born again. You must start over. Uh, You must have a life prior to your conversion and a life after your conversion. John 3, 3, Three, five, and six. Okay. Uh, the to to get to this point in if in fact you may in your verse it may even translate from above. That that may be what it is in in the RSV that I grew up on. That was a footnote because the the Greek word is anothane, and anothane can either be translated again or from above. And the from above translation is much more consistent with the whole of John where Jesus is this figure that comes from above. In terms of the individual experience of Christ and, and of, of conversion, if if we say again, you know, you must be born again, there is an implication of a past, a change, and a future. You know, it's a temporal phrase. If we say you must be born from above, it is a stronger emphasis on the origins of that coming from God, that, that this is God's action in the human heart. And so um, I have frankly... Um, you know, as a as a Presbyterian kid that grew up in the Bible Belt, I have have always one of the defining characteristics of my ministry and my sense of a Christian is that that the model of individual conversion that that is implied by you must be born again is is not the only way that one has to become a Christian. Even though I grew up in a region where it was implied that it was, and so I've sort of spent my life trying to say hey, there's some of us over here who have not had that kind of conversion experience, but we too are included in God's grace and kingdom. And so I have always, when I learned, I think in college or early in seminary, that Anothane translation, that's always been a lifeline to me. 
and and so in that reason, I really liked John because that's that's kind of where you you find it. Whereas this morning in uh, comparative religion, you pointed out that very verse, and uh, because she said her thinking on that is the way, the truth, and the life. That life, that yeah. That is that is the essence of Jesus. And that's the way you come through to know. In other words, she pointed very well. Yeah, that is good. That is good. So I just like the origins of from above. Uh, I mean, I can't explain. I cannot explain myself being a Christian other than that that is something that has come from God, that God has given me and implanted within me. Um, and, And so I'm... I've spent a fair amount of time in my ministry, not a fair amount, some time in my ministry, trying to comfort people who sometimes fear that they're not really Christian if they haven't had a, a revivalist born-again experience. And, and my, you know, I use this verse in this translation to say that is not how God speaks to everybody. And so, so please, you can, you can be included you know, don't feel like a second-class Christian uh, for that reason. There's plenty of other reasons to feel like a second-class Christian, <laughs> many of of which many of us qualify. <laughs> so anyway, um, that's a little bit of a riff. So um, riff, isn't it a riff? R I F F. So anyway, so down. I'm I'm still at this, uh, but these descriptions recede behind the stronger image of Jesus being from above, eternally at home with God whom he reveals in word and sign. Uh, some examples of that, and I don't have these printed out just because there are so many of them are one-versers, but uh, Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you see him in the flesh, what you're seeing is God. Uh, an interesting thing about, about Jesus all the way through in John Remember in, remember in the other Gospels, it's let this cup pass from me if there's any way, you know, not my will, but thine be done, but let this cup pass from me. There's this agonizing struggle of Jesus to, to really accept his role. And there's a question in the other Gospels. Uh, it's the Watergate question. What did he know and when did he know it? You know, when did he know for sure that he was the Messiah? Was it you know, when he was in the temple alone as a as a boy, was it upon his baptism? You know, was it uh, at what point did he know? In yeah, did he always know, or was it a developing awareness on his part? Yeah, yeah, it is. In John, he knows from day one. Jesus is totally in control of his actions and his consciousness in John. Uh, he says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, in 13.3, Jesus knows that he has come from God and knows that he is going to God. Therefore, he does not have any need for anyone to tell him anything. I hadn't looked at, noticed that phrasing before. Let's look that up. Where do we see? How does he express that wonderful yeah, that's, yeah. To, yeah, my time is not, you know, woman. And then he goes ahead and does what she says, which is probably wise. There are other times when he says that, though, too, after 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is 224, but Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them uh, because he knew all people and he needed no one to testify about anyone for he himself knew what was in everyone. He is truly all-knowing in the Gospel of John. Uh, he ministers according to his divine plan, which is called my hour. At the wedding feast at Cana, he says, remember, my hour is not here yet. And it is not according to the instructions or advice or requests of others, including in chapter 2, his mother. In chapter 7, see who that is. That's his, that his, that's again his mother and his brothers, uh, where he says, uh, Jesus said to his mothers and brothers in chapter 7, verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify against it. Go to the festival yourselves. I'm not going to the festival, for my time has not yet fully come. He does at times sound like kind of an obnoxious teenager. You know, uh, don't teach your kids to memorize these scriptures. They will use them against you. Okay, watch that patience, all right? <laughs> so teach them to... Honor your father and mother, not quoting Jesus back to his mother. And uh, then 11, 1 to 7, 11 is the, is the raising of Lazarus. And that is where, I mean, it's an odd thing, but it, if you look at it, uh, a certain man was ill. I'm in chapter 11, Lazarus, the village of Mary and Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord. The sister sent a message to Jesus. I'm in 11, 3. Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, Nah, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after her hearing that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Violates every rule of pastoral care that you're ever taught in seminary. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The women come out and they blame him. You know, if you had been here, if only you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But again, it's this clear sense that he knows his timetable and is not going to be changed or deterred by anyone else. So it's a very strong Jesus. Um, Uh, well, he gets raised again. There's some sense of, of death or sleep, I think, in that passage, that he's not really dead, that he's asleep. Yeah. And the question is, how do you explain that when he actually died? I, the second way I would answer that poss possibly is, in the Gospel of John, there are two levels of conversation that are always going on. We're going to, we're going to get actually the very little next section on this. Um, you always have Jesus speaking at this level, and the disciples are always speaking down here on earth. And so, for example, when in chapter 2, Jesus speaks of the temple being, after three days it will be raised again, and the crowd thinks of the building, the wood and the stone before them, the earthly building. Um, 
Jesus speaks of new birth from above. Nicodemus thinks, well, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb? You know, an earthly, anatomical level. Uh, Jesus speaks of the water of life. And the Samaritan woman thinks of the well and the bucket. It's a spiritual, heavenly level and an earthly level. And then Jesus speaks of food that sustains in chapter 4. And the disciples wonder who brought all the food, who brought lunch. So it's a, that may be what's going on here too. We could probably add Lazarus' death to that. Uh, I mean, Jesus basically knows he's going to heal him. Uh, so in, in that sense, maybe he's saying, doesn't matter that he's dead now for a while. Just asleep, I'll bring him back. Lazarus does die again. That's the difference between Lazarus and, and Jesus. But, I mean, he later dies. Um, and then I, th- I think back on this, what Jesus knows. Uh, Jesus, the one I love the best, well, 1142, Jesus' prayers. This is another thing we're taught not to do in seminary. You're supposed to pray and not preach, even though I violate that sometimes in prayers. Uh, in 42, Jesus looks upward and says, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. And what the dynamic of that is, is, and I'll, I'll use Frank as a whipping boy here if I can, okay? Uh, you know, bow your head. <laughs> I'm praying for you. So, dear God, we give you thanks for those who are president of the choir. And we ask your forgiveness for those who are obnoxious. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, that's really a gutless sermon. Not that you're obnoxious, okay? Right? No, no. It's uh, I can remember in in this uh, this is not the Sunday school teacher I told you about last week in the sermon. But for a while at, at the church in Sunday school, we had a a professor from what's now Rhodes College. It was called Southwestern, then a New Testament professor, and it was again. I mean, the church was paying him to come out, and I always. There were just two or three of us there. And this was this was in the 60s with all of the protests and the anti-war movement, civil rights and all that. And this professor named Carl Walters had been, he had actually, I think, taken sabbatical and come up, was it to Prince Edward County in Virginia that closed the schools, you know, in, and was marching and all that. And, but he talked about a youth service we had, and, you know, in those days, I just remember him saying, well, you know, it, the prayers were a little bit like sermons, and it's really not fair to have somebody bow their heads, and then you hit them over the head with a hammer. <laughs> I just never forget that image. But in a sense, Jesus does it does that more positively, but like in, in chapter 17, which you'll read this week, it's, it's his farewell discourse, which... You'll you'll see in John this week. It's it's kind of a funny part of the Bible. He basically says, you know, I'm done. We're going to Jerusalem. And then there's three more chapters of his long discourses. It's like, well, the last point of the sermon is in summary. And then 30 minutes later, you're still sitting there listening to this long sermon. But in 17, he prays for. It's a very famous prayer because he prays for the disciples. 
that they would essentially be strengthened in his absence, you know, once he is preparing them to live without him. And it is a prayer, and he prays for their unity, but it is a prayer in which, you know, they have their heads bowed and hear themselves being prayed for and more or less preached to. And and again, that's just this strength that Jesus has of, you know, he's willing to say and do anything that is because he's in charge, you know. And so that's really what doesn't going on a little bit too long about that, but it's uh that's that's part of what's going on here. Uh, the the other thing, if you'll look at. Uh, you haven't gotten here yet, but but at his death, which is, um, if you'll look in chapter 19 at the crucifixion, three of the seven last words of Jesus, um, and maybe even four of them, I don't know how one of them's counted, but come from John. And at chapter uh, 19, verse... Where am I here? Okay, chapter 19, verse 28, he says, I am thirsty. And that, that's not necessarily a being in control. But they bring a jar of wine, and then in, in chapter 30, I mean in verse 30, he then says, it is finished. And he bows his head and gives up his spirit. He is in control. His death is, he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. And then earlier in that chapter is what I meant to to point to as well, where he uh, where he gives his the beloved disciple to John. And where am I here? Okay, yeah, it's just right above that. In, in 26, mean, mean, in 25, meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, or in, the, as I learned that, that's called the beloved disciple, standing beside her, from the cross he says to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he says to the disciple, here is, or behold, your mother. And from that hour, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. I mean, of these four last words, I am thirsty, behold your son, behold your mother, and it is finished. These are all very much Jesus being in control uh, and, and being strong and knowing who he is even to his hours of death. And it matches something that he says in the Good Shepherd passage in 10, 17, and 18. This is part of what Catherine's it may have been easier to think of Jesus as a shepherd than, than maybe some of the other I am, resurrection, bread, etc. Um, and the Good Shepherd passage is, is, is very famous and beloved in the church. For one reason, it comes up every year in the lectionary. And it's a great pairing with the 23rd Psalm. Um, you know, ministers pair texts like, you know, chefs pair wine. You know, so, but um, it's part of what the lectionary is. It's just, what's that? <laughs> right. So, um, but in in sixteen and seventeen, 
this is at the end of the Good Shepherd passage. I have other sheep that do not belong this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up. I have received this command from my Father. Again, very, very strong, uh, in control, Jesus. Uh, we've talked about the, the two layers of communication. Um, the, the, uh, the gospel is, I want to talk about the gospel being structured and then, um, then we'll see what to do. Um, I know what we'll do. I'll just decide at the spot. Um, the gospel is structured to present Jesus as it's a very consistent structure as the revealer of God. And so if you look at uh, at the at the prologue we're going to we're going to look at this later, but the whole purpose of the prologue is it, in itself it, it has this double Meaning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It begins up here in heaven, and then it goes to earth. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light. Uh, there's, there's very much this sense that it's this, this whole gospel is going to be a witness to, um, to present Jesus as the revealer of God. In chapters one through twelve, which is what you read today. Um, the revealer of God ministers on earth. That's the part you read today. And then next week, the revealer of God is going to return to God in glory. And that, that will be, you know, the seven chapters you read next week. And then on the epilogue, if you'll turn to 21, 1 to 5, again, it's always important to see what, what each gospel is claiming its own purpose is. Uh, Um, no, that's not what I'm looking at. That's not what I'm looking for. It's yeah. No, forget that. We'll get that. We'll get to that next week. I mean, in in twenty one twenty four or twenty one twenty five, uh, there are. There is one statement of the purpose of a gospel. There are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself would not contain all of the books that would be written. And then if you go back to 20, it's chapter 30. You have these two purposes of the book, and that's, that's really a beautiful statement. But in 2030, the author John is saying to us, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. John is very clear why he is writing. He is writing so that you may come to believe and in coming to believe have life in his name. And if you'll recall in... 
um, I think it's chapter 10. There's there's another famous 10:10 at the end, end of the Good Shepherd. Uh, the second half of 10:10 is I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's Jesus' purpose. And life in the Gospel of John is another two-layered thing. It is, um, the Greek word is zoe, Z-O-E. Anybody that's named Zoe or Zoe, you know, it's, it means life in, in Greek. And um, in, in John's in, in John's understanding of salvation and of and of the relation between earth and between earth and heaven, um, Jesus offers eternal life, and eternal life is something that begins here. So that so that when we uh, become a disciple of Christ, or are you know choose that, or are born from above, or born again, we enter this life that. Uh, is a heavenly life and that continues after our death but but the the movement from earth to heaven is a is a continuation it's an it's a significant upgrade uh, so to speak um, and it it's it's not it's not as radical a, a break I mean that just the word life in in John is is what we have that begins here and now and it's a really neat thing to think of our lives here and now under God and in Christ as being the beginning of what's to come, you know, and not, I mean, not substantive, I guess not substantively different. I don't, I don't know that I really want to say it that way. But um, anyway, there are uh, we've done, there are three ways, three kinds of material in this gospel. And I want to say, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are what are called revelation discourses, which you're going to see more of in this week's reading than you saw this week. But again, in John, you know, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus weaves these often short parables, a parable of the sower, the parable of the, you know, the lost coin, the lost sheep. In John, he speaks in very lengthy discourses, uh, which, which you have begun to see. Uh, and then, so so the discourses are one way that that Jesus reveals Himself. The other way are signs, and the signs are are really John's word for miracles, but but they're a little bit different because the signs are revelatory in and of themselves, and they usually lead to the discourses. So he'll have a feeding miracle that will lead to an I am the bread of life, you know, a lengthy discourse. But there are seven of these in John. Uh, turning the water to wine, which you read this week in chapter 2. Healing the nobleman's son in chapter 4. Healing the lame man by the pool in chapter 5. Feeding the multitude in chapter 6. Walking on water in chapter 6, healing the blind man in chapter 7, and the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, and then at the end, the, the, the large catch of fish uh, after his, in, in his appearance after his res- resurrection. And then the third 
way in the Gospel of John that Jesus is revealed is through the Passion narrative and everything that happens the last week of his life around his his death and resurrection, some of which we have begun to see. Um, A couple of I want to point out a couple of neat things about John that that aren't in the the handout, just sort of for your information and and the unity of of the work itself, and then we'll take our break. Um, Peanut butter cookies today, right? I recognize them coming around the corner. They have that distinctive (laughs) look and cut and, of course, taste and smell. Um, In in the whole of the biblical literature, um, the, the Gospel of John is more in conversation and aware of Genesis than the other Gospels. And and part of where we see that is the way it begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, Remember, Mark begins with Jesus as an adult. Matthew and Luke begin with, with angels announcing birth and birth occurring. John moves the timetable all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Um, the um, the thing I like about about John that I always try to point out is if you will remember, turn back to Genesis uh, to the end of the first creation story. I just think this is one of these really things that's neat. If you look in chapter 2, 1, which is 2, 1 through 4a, or the end of the first creation story, but it's chapter 2, where God has created everything and, had, and, and is now on the Sabbath. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. It's the word finished there that is a loaded word in Hebrew. It means truly finished. That all of the elements of creation are there. Uh, And then if you will look at in John at uh, at chapter 19 again. We saw this earlier. Chapter 19.30. Jesus had said he was thirsty. They gave him a jar of sour, or they put the this, this sponge full of sour wine to his mouth In 1930, when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There is, uh, there's a a parallel there, you know, a conversation going on. And part of it is, in what I've always been told about that verse in Genesis, is that there is a sense in which God has, in creation, has set it all up and given us all of the elements that 
that we need and have. And it's, and I, I'm sure the deists get this, that sort of the rest is up to us, but it's th- that 70s phrase that some of us were taught in Sunday school and put posters on our walls and all that of, you know, God is not finished with me yet. You know, that we're co-creators, that creation is ongoing, really doesn't fit this. This is the idea that God has given us everything we need and therefore sick them, go to it. You know, you've got everything you need. And there, and I'll recognize you in just a minute. And, there, and there's a sense in which, you know, if that's true, what Jesus is saying is, you know, you have had me. I have done my work. It is finished. Now carry on. So it's up to us. It's up to us, yeah. He's with us, too. But it's it's not like he, he's going to keep adding things in a trial and error. Marianne. Yeah, I just wanted to say, this is, in the beginning was the word. This is the Christmas verse. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Orthodox yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, it is. You're right. The the Orthodox Church loves the Gospel of John. I mean, they absolutely love it. But the Orthodox Church is really sort of hovers between heaven and earth in their worship. I mean, you'd never have funny announcements in the Orthodox Church. You'd never have a children's sermon. You'd never have what we have. I mean, they're just da 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 da, and it's the Gospel of John. So. So they don't need a manger. You know, it's in the beginning, God. You know, it all begun. Somebody else had their hand up? Okay. So um, the other thing to know, and then, then we'll take our break, is that the, the Gospel of John is also tied to the book of Revelation because it is a, it's basically attributed to the same school, and depending on how... Uh, what the scholars you follow say, it's, it's, they would say it's the same author. I don't necessarily think it's the same author, but it is clearly um, the Gospel of John, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which we will get to, and you will read them at a stoplight because they're so short, or at least one of them is. So, And then the then the Revelation, it's a revelation to St. John. So these books are all linked together as one sort of, you know, school or movement or expression of Christianity, just like you sort of had Matthew writing to his church and Luke writing to his church and Mark writing to his community. There's a community out of which this literature comes that, that is also linked. And there's no, you know, there's no I mean, Revelation is also in conversation with Genesis about the garden. It ends with a garden. It's a recreation of humanity. So, so there's this sort of thread between Genesis, John, and and the Book of Revelation, and then the letters to John fit in there too. So, yes, yes. Of John the Baptist. That's John, no, oh, I don't know. It's this John. Yeah, I, I don't know. You'll have to see when we go there this winter. Ephesus. Yes. Oh, yeah, we're not going to Ephesus. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. 
Somebody else may in the class. Roger, you may. Um, in just reading about John before, I had the impression that there, from a historical standpoint that there was like a, an emergence of people who were really followers of John the Baptist. Yes. And that they were very yes. strong and part of the goal of John writing John was actually to verify that Jesus was actually the Messiah and that John the Baptist was the wrong way to go. Uh, yeah, or yes, if not the wrong way to go, at least not, not yeah. And and you see that when in, in the prologue uh, in 6 to 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. There, the author, John, takes great pains to distinguish the two, which may mean that, um, that John, that in his audience, were a huge followers of John the Baptist, because that distinguished... That distinguishing is stronger in the Gospel of John than in the other two. You know, although he gets beheaded in Luke and he, you know, he... uh, He's like a martyr. Yeah, yeah. Okay, other questions so far? Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. They were thrown out, and that was a problem for them. They were. Yes. They, that's when they started like house churches, um, and so there's kind of like a, a negativity toward right. the, the, the Jews. Right. You know, and those were the people that threw them out of the yes. synagogue. And we're gonna after our break, we're gonna take that up. That's what the little handout is. About she's on to something there. As are you. You got a good memory. Okay, Wayne. Curious. Um, what do you think of the first part of chapter eight? The, the part the woman caught in adultery and worked out the most reliable manuscripts I have in my Bible. Yeah. What do I think about it? Yeah. Well. Yeah, it, it's always in brackets. If you'll notice there, you know, it, it starts with a bracket and ends with a bracket. And uh, I don't know what the notes say here. There are some Bibles that, that we've used and grown up with. Yeah, note K. The most ancient authorities lack this. Other authorities add the passage here or after 736 or after 2125 or after Luke 2138 with variations of the text. Some mark the passage as doubtful. Um, what that means is in the early manuscripts, it, it wasn't there, but it was discovered in later manuscripts of John, and therefore, uh, it's depending on the editor, it's included or not included. And so here they split the difference and included it with within brackets and said it appears in in different manuscripts. Different ancient manuscripts is found in these different places. So. 
from a from a continuity standpoint with what John is, is talking about. It, on one level it does, but it, it also is not a terribly Johannine sounding story as much. I can see why why it would be put in Luke as well. It uh you know, it's an it's an interesting story because it um this has nothing to do with whether or not it's in this gospel. There's really a great African-American spiritual from it, which I can't name, but I've heard. I mean, I've heard done. Um, it, it's, you know, it's also it's also just sort of tough. I mean, again, it's a woman caught in adultery. And, you know, it's one of those stories that's a little more difficult to hear today and, and doesn't fit as much. Sing well tonight. Frank is going to the to rehearse, he is in the choir, <laughs> and uh, you all are all welcome to stay for this hymn fest, which really will be a nice Reformation service today. So um, I have to go to Vienna, but you all are welcome to stay. It starts at 6.15, and they start at 6.15 for sake of these classes, so you can go, which reminds me, I'm avoiding your question, Wayne, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, it was found in later manuscripts. So then you have a decision. Do you add it to your authoritative translation or not? So there's also, as I announced today, and for some reason it didn't, it was left out of the bulletin, but on the third, which is next Sunday, we're having the first of two panels dealing with the whole child safety. And it's really the impact of of what our kids are going through with anxiety about school shootings and the drills that they have to do. So we're having two nights on this uh, that Adult Ed has been working on for, I don't know, six or eight months. Uh, they will start at 7, and Melinda, who's temporary chair of Adult Ed, told me that there will be pizza in Fellowship Hall for those of you who want to stay if you want to go to those programs. So this class will end at 6, and then these programs will start at 7. With that, let's take a cookie break, and then we'll come back and do the prologue and anti-Semitism, okay? I want to do... Um, I realized that last week I'd intentionally skipped the introductions, and I forgot this week, so I still think we'll pick up next week. It's your table, and Wayne, your table has not gone yet, right? You all have not, and, and then you all haven't. Okay, okay, I, I'd lose track, but we'll do those the next the next three weeks, uh, mainly so you can just meet other people. So, um, what I want to do is is this addendum that I handed out, which is which is John and anti Judaism. Then I want us to do the prologue, and then give you all a discussion time after that. Uh, I, I to give a little bit of background on this. I uh, I've generally known just from from a distance, but as someone you know who preaches and teaches and and is always concerned about our relationship with with Jews, uh, that in in much of the the New Testament or especially the Gospels, you have these statements that are that are that are pretty blaming, blameworthy of the of the Jews for the death of Christ. And it's sort of only in recent years as as I've read and realized that, that John is the is the most prominent in that. And uh, what I was always told and have sort of repeated when it's come up, although I think a lot of times as Christians we read read the material and don't see 
as deeply how it how it is heard by Jews. But but what I've always heard, uh, which this article verifies, is that um, that most of the anti-Jewish language is really an internal debate within Judaism about Jesus. So it's one Jewish party calling another Jewish party uh, a name sometimes. And, you know, we've, we have seen that or are aware of that dimension in, in African American culture and in black culture in America where it's sort of okay for one black person to use the N-word on another black person, but it's not okay for us as outsiders. So it's roughly comparable to that. Um, and it, it is definitely true that there were parties of, of Jews who were, I mean, you know, different almost denominations, and certainly those Jews who followed Jesus um, embraced him, then had a really tenuous connection to the to the establishment, you know, to the to the synagogue. However, the Gospel of John is is more pronounced in that, and I I summarize this article from uh, from a Jewish annotated New Testament by Amy Jill Levine, who's a scholar I really really trust, uh, and and want to go over it briefly. Um, so. So again, like all of the Gospels, John, John was written for a specific community in a, in a specific historical context or moment. And what was new to me is that is this next paragraph, the challenge, the the Greek term hoi hude oi, which is in Greek, I don't pronounce it very well, or variations appear more than 70 times in the Gospel of John. So a book that has what 21 chapters, that's you know four. Three, three and a half times a chapter, that phrase appears. The literal translation is the Judeans, and that literally means the people that inhabit the region of Judea, which, which is the southern part of Israel. It's where Jerusalem is located. Uh, and and the, the commonplace use was not the Judeans, but the Jews. In the Gospel of John, the use of this term is often hostile, depicting the Jews in a terrible light. Uh, In John, the Jews are from the outset portrayed as the people who reject Jesus in the prologue, who persecute him in 516, who seek his death in 840, who expel believers from the synagogue in 922, and those would be believers who who have embraced Jesus, who have become Christians who plot Jesus' death, and then who persecute his followers. Um, and and that is, that's a little more pronounced in John. You would also find that to some extent in the, in the other Gospels as well. Um, and and some of that is, is likely factually true. I mean, that's not, uh, that's not just made up. I mean, there was certainly conflict, and there was certainly... Uh, Reasons for the for certain parties in Judaism to want Jesus to be put to death and and were uh, in collusion with the Roman the Romans to do that. Um, what you have in John though that makes that language more pronounced or more significant is that as I said earlier, John is the language. John is the book that has this dualistic mindset that that 
comes as much from its Greek heritage as anything. But in John, there are these warring forces of nature and of the cosmos, the spirit versus flesh, light and darkness, life and death, salvation and damnation, God and Satan, belief and non-belief. These dualisms are spread throughout the Gospel of John and are reflective of the author's almost Manichaean viewpoint. Um, And you'll certainly see that in Revelation. So you add dualism to what is already in the tradition, which is a tendency to, to hold the Jews responsible for the death of Christ. And that's those two then sort of play on each other or accelerate. Um, the overall rhetorical effect of this relentless repetition of the words, hoi, hoi, D-O-I, the Jews. Um, I mean, if you say it enough, it becomes a slur. The Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the foreigners, the foreigners, the foreigners, the blacks, the blacks, the blacks. I mean, that's sort of the impact, the rhetorical impact of this gospel. Um, and it's something that, that Christians have to deal with. I know I know of Presbyterian churches that have, during the season of Lent, when you have this at the forefront because it focuses on the death of Christ, will put sort of announcements of disclaimer or explanation in the bulletin saying you will hear in today's reading language that is uh, that is hard on on the Jews please understand that this is an internal conversation of two Jewish parties and it's not not to be taken to be all Jews in all places or Jews ethnically uh, having the, the last part of this and this this is the part that that I really had a revelation about when we went to Israel uh, the first time. Um, in John's Gospel in 844, Jesus declares to his Jewish audience, you are from the father of the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. What has happened with this very explicit statement is that the Jews became associated with Satan or the devil essentially in Western literature and the Western church and and the Orthodox church too. I mean, the Orthodox church is enormously hard, hard on the Jews. But it's this link of the Jews as being the devil. And that is where or what gave rise to the just sort of virulent anti-Semitism that has existed in in Western and Orthodox Christianity ever since. Um, when I was at, and 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 frankly, um, Phil, I know you'll crawl under the table, but but the the most I mean the most pronounced Protestant about this is Martin Luther, and Martin Luther is an absolute gift to. Christianity in terms of his theology of grace, but and but Luther was a profane uh, man, man of the people, beer drinking, German, uh, blue collar. Uh, his table talk is famous because it was body and not the talk a preacher or a theologian would would enter into, but part. Yeah, it's. I, mean, I haven't read much of it, but it is fantastic. I mean, he was an enormously human character. But part of that, yeah, part of that humanity is a searing anti-Semitism with, with Luther that just took root 
on German soil, you know. And where I saw it the most, which some of you all will see this year, is in is in the Holocaust Museum in, in Israel. Um, I mean, they've they've got a display of it, and they may may have it here too. But there are are woodcuts uh, from a French humanist. Uh, 16th century Pierre Boisteneau, I can't pronounce French, but uh, the devil calling the uh, the Jew calling the devil from a vessel. Uh, I mean, there's you know picking up the tail of a donkey and a Jewish head and being stuck out. I mean, I don't know if y'all remember this. There's just these horrible cartoon figures that are just blood curdling, and uh, you know that that headed had a life of its own, obviously. Uh, in, in most of you probably know of, of the Merchant of Venice, where Shylock is, is follows every Jewish stereotype of being conniving and wealthy, and uh, he's called a kind of a devil, the devil himself, and the very devil incarnate. That's where it's linked. I about five or six years ago, um, I had a, a really great English professor in college who was a Chaucer scholar and used to come in uh, and into class and and just open his textbook. I mean, just open the book that we had, and he would just recite the Canterbury Tales and the poems um, from memory. I mean, he was just a wonderful teacher. So I sort of got this love of Chaucer as an undergrad. And a few years ago, I went back and read the the Canterbury Tales and you know, one of them, this Priors' tale, and there's another, the Friars, there's another of the tales that is, that is just horrendous. And, and, and anti-Semitism, and the scholars even think that that was, Chaucer got in trouble for being so anti-clerical and so humorous in his sarcasm about the clerics that they think he wrote one of these, um, with strong anti-Semitic language to sort of stay in the good graces of the church authorities, you know, which again is just people using the Jews as a, as a whipping boy, which happens in history. And then, then the Jews as devil is, is a, a trope on modern, modern websites. Uh, the, the answer to it, which is on the back and, and it's a, it's a half answer, but it's, it is, it is a historically true answer that, uh, that this is Again, one minority distinguishing its identity from the others. So the, the vitriolic language is still, you know, sort of Jew against Jew, uh, as they are defining themselves. Uh, and it, it's not, you know, it's not good. One would also, would always wish that people express themselves a little more diplomatically than they do, including me and others at times, uh, but it 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 is a stretch. It's an understandable stretch, but it's a stretch to take that language and say, you know, Jews are racially and ethnically responsible for the death of Christ or, or tools of Satan, and that's essentially the leap that has been made in history that's led to so much of the anti-Semitism. Um, that's the best shot I can give it. I don't know. Do you you want to say anything? You're great. Well, no, I, I mean, I think... I'm putting you on the spot, but okay. you can take I, it. I told Larry, when I read John, like everybody knows it's the first time, I've read the New Testament. So it's new to me. I think it's probably um, 
I'm a rarity in that regard. And so I'm reading it and I'm thinking, I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know how I feel about this class. I never noticed this before, not realizing that The Passion of the Christ was out when I was in Nate's hometown in church, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Iowa, which is where I came from. And um, I I finally saw it, too. I I resisted a long time, and I I did about a 10- or 12-page paper on it that about 150 people from the church came to in two different settings. Uh, And it it was critical of it. and I actually sent a copy of it to the pastor nominating committee here when they were considering me. So there's maybe something good that came out of it, you know. But it uh, it it did impact me, and I I was proud because I did it without mentioning Mel Gibson's name. I didn't want it to be about Mel Gibson. I wanted it to be about the depiction in the movie. Uh, don't worry, this is not a defense of Luther. That's for another time. <laughs> um, could you address this problem? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, it's a very good question because I do think it's important to not, not whitewash the history. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to whitewash it. I think, um, the way that I've, the way that I've dealt with that in my own life is to look, is to look at all four gospels. And there were, there were political reasons that it was that the Roman state had an interest in Jesus' death. And there were there were political reasons that certain strands of Judaism had an interest in his death. And and those two things came together and and happened in a in a historical way. I mean both were party to it and we you know I don't know that we've got enough where you could wait and say it was 60 40 or 70 30 well in that in that in that passage they are 
but but they still had the power of the death penalty and put him to and cooperated. So let me let me try to answer this before I do deal with questions. Okay, so um, I think it is. I think on the one hand, it it makes Jesus more. It makes his death more understandable and closer to us when when you see him as having died uh, as the result of political decisions made by people in power in a period of time in which his life and death and their region were not all that important. I mean, this was not... China and the United States. This was not World War II. So on one level, it was not an untypical death that, that at least two parties were involved in. Um, the, the move to take that and universalize it, which he frankly invites because he was the son of God. I mean, he did have more importance than than just... You know, some reformer that got put to death and cast out. Uh, it it just it is more reflective of human nature and the fall than it is anything endemic about either of those participants, including the Jews. Is what I say, so that they are a type of people who, because he was blasphemous to them, enough of them wanted him to be punished for that, that they that they prevailed in that instance. But to go from that to anti-Semitism, I think is, is not legitimate, but is human. And that's the way I deal with it. So we got a lot, there's a lot of hands in the air, so I don't want to leave the topic, but, but if somebody... Yeah. Yeah, what what that is again the Jews were a minority under the Roman Empire and it was in their interest to be quiet. And Yeah, it's it's to it's to not make waves. And because Jesus was making waves, he was a threat to their safety historically. I mean that would have been their motivation, Dana to understand all this. I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Um, of course, this isn't the only thing I can't begin to understand. But anyway, having put that aside, I, I do think about the fact that we were to know that that Jesus was going to come, and it's 
throughout the Bible, and his own would know him not. He right. was not going to be accepted, and we see this in many ways. So that's that's one thing. And so the idea of his own being other Jewish people makes sense to me. The second thing that makes And I would, I, I mean, I would, to me, what is revealing about the death of Jesus, apart from the way we as in Christians interpret it as, as his giving of himself and it's salvific and all the theological meaning that we, that we impart to it, is there are elements of it that reveal human nature. And part of that is... A prophet is not accepted in his own honor. Get rid of the prophet. Get rid of the reformer. Get rid of the person that's getting us to change. The other big part of it is the devil made me do it. Right. You know, I mean, let's equate him with Satan. Let's equate our enemy with, you know, with Satan. And, and then we're allowed to just think anything we want to. That has nothing to do with Judea, with Judaism, with Jesus, that is human nature, of which part of this is revealing. I think that's that's part of the story. Joanne wants to speak, and then we'll move well, on. Just really quickly, and, you know, in the sense of the truth, you know, the natural there's a natural um, desire. I mean, of kind of a natural fear, which is well founded because they saw. I mean, God. You know, this was a departure from who God is in, in right. the Jewish mind. And, you know, to go against that thinking in the collectively as a Jewish community, I mean, that just wasn't going to happen, at least not in that moment. Yeah, I mean, he was he was blaspheming God by claiming by for a man to claim to be God. But against their understanding of the so. sovereignty of God. Other comments? One more. Okay, Robin. I struggle with this, so I don't even really know where my question is. But I get stuck on, is there a villain in this story? <laughs> That's a great question. Oh, yeah. Just because of the, I mean, I've always seen the passion narrative as, 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 a, as a, a grace of, of a, how you know we are saved through grace. And and you always see Jesus saying that these things were going to happen to right. fulfill the scripture. So was his death going to happen no matter what? And these are the people who ended up putting him to death. Okay, if that has, I, you know, I struggle with where that leads. And I'm a person who has a hard time with us versus them narratives that you see in a lot of this. Um, I don't know if there's any thinking on that at all or not. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of thinking. I mean, because part of the Christian thing is, well, this was God's plan. So who, who does it, why does it matter who carried it out? Yeah. And that's a. That's a later theological development, but it's real. It's deeply ingrained in us. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't think there's one villain in the story. I think there's several villains in the story, but I think, you know, the the greatest hymn from Easter is "Were you there when they crucified my Lord?" And the the answer to that is, "Oh yeah, I was there." I mean, I was there. I mean, it, it's I, that's the way I've always heard that hymn. It's like, if I had been there, yes, I would have acted in the same way. I mean, it it's a way of looking at the death of Christ and 
seeing ourselves in it and how easily we could have been caught up in carrying that out. Yeah. To me, that's the so the villain is us. I yeah. guess is what I'm saying. Collective humanity. Yeah, and I, I, so I was a youth advisor at a church when the Passion movie came out, and we took the high schoolers. Right, <laughs> good. Um, and they all came out with this horrible <laughs> sense of guilt. Of, right. I did this, and, and then having to reel that back in. Was, was yeah. But that was very much not the Romans did this, Pilate did this, Jesus yeah. did this, I did this, and that was that, that's a tough thing to take. Yeah. So is there anybody that's totally baffled and wants to say, admit that, and just say, you're, ask one more question? I have one, I have one more question. It's not more than being baffled about it. But has anyone here ever read Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago? Yeah. Okay. What? So in there, Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago, in there, he yes. tries to understand why the guards are so brutal. And he puts himself in the guard mindset. And he realizes towards the end, and they're, you know, people are, I don't want to equate it to the Holocaust, but people are being, millions of people are being put into concentration camps and just brutalized and murdered uh, and worked to death with very little uh, And they're just political dissidents. Um, he realizes that if he was in the same position of the guards, he would do the same thing. And the, the lesson of, the, right. of, his, of his book, of his story, is uh, pretty much what you were talking about, the, the product of the fall, is that we all have the ability to be the monster. Right. And we all have to realize that we are the monster. Right. We have to, however, find a way to bring us back to the light. Right, right. That's great, Nate. And it that's is. how I'm viewing. It took me a while to get to it, but that's how yeah. my notes took me a while to get to it. I mean, that, that's the way I, you know, I, the this... The story reveals the human tendency to scapegoat, the human tendency to find somebody we can blame and and to take the next step of getting rid of that somebody. And the way that anti-Semitism has developed from that has been especially and deeply tragic because it sort of fits into the Jewish experience throughout history of all of always being blamed. But it's the yeah, I take it as the human tendency. As you know, everything comes out of the fall and good old Larry's theology here. So <laughs> back to the beginning. So all right, this has been let, let's get on to something lighter. Uh, okay. Um I, I wanna just let's just walk through the prologue a little bit and then I'll give you give you time for questions and uh it, I, I studied John. I took the Gospel of John from Father Raymond Brown, who is still probably the, in the last 200 years, the leading expert on John. Uh, and I, I, um, he was a great teacher as well as a great scholar. And uh, it's still not my favorite gospel, but it, but I learned a lot about it. So, and and his theory is that the prologue is literally like the pro, prologue to an opera or a play. It is a piece of music. It's very poetic that introduces all of the themes that will unfold in the in the gospel itself, and that it was likely the last thing that that the author composed. Uh, 
So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This prologue starts with cosmology. It starts in heaven. And uh, and again, connects with back with the book of Genesis. Then we go to earth. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. This is John the Baptist. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light that enlightens everyone was coming into the world. We've already had introduced so far... Jesus as the Word, as the life, and as the light. Now we go back into uh, no this we're still on we're still on the earth in chapter ten. He the Word was in the world and the and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. Almost this two level thing. The world couldn't recognize him for who he was. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him, uh, the, or to his own home. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, again, that connects with John 3.16, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of the blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man but of God. And that's this birth from above. You see how that connects? With, I don't understand who, I'm sorry, I don't understand who it's talking about because it says whether it's talking about the word, about John the Baptist. It's, that's, that's talking about the word which is linked with Jesus. It's not, that, that paragraph is not about John the Baptist. So even though it never says in verse 10, it starts with the word Right. It never says Jesus' name, but he's talking about Jesus. Yes. It, yeah. So in the previous paragraph, it's John the Baptist. Yeah. It's bad English. I mean, it's an in, it, it's an insertion. Probably six through eight were were a later insertion when they were dealing with John the Baptist. Is what most scholars think, because it does break the poetic pattern. And then fourteen, which become very moving verses for for Christians. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, or pitched his tent among us is what that verb means. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. I mean, this is like the, the heavens and the earth coming together into this one person, and then we have parenthetical material. John testified to him and cried, cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. And this is, and then from his, which is the word's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart, 
who has made him known. And then we get the testimony of John the Baptist, which is is really the beginning of the gospel proper. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny. It's repetitive, but confessed. I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Well, then are you Elijah the prophet? No, I'm not. He answered, "Uh, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. Who do you say that I am? And then he quotes Isaiah, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And, and then it starts. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know. He came to his own people, but his own people knew him not. The one who is coming after me, I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across from Jordan where John was baptizing. And then the next day, Jesus is introduced into the narrative. So uh, there's just a lot of themes there that are that are uh, you know that are introduced. And the I'm gonna one of your discussion questions. If if you'll look on. Uh, where I talk about the word and wisdom. Um, the meaning of the word logos or a word. In the beginning was the word. It is the creative word by which God spoke everything into existence. In the Old Testament, it's, it, it is sometimes the word dabar, D-A-V-A-R, D-A-B-A-R. The word has its own creative power. The word goes out from the prophets and comes back. Uh, in Judy... Yeah, like let there be light, and there was light, right. And that is attached to the figure of wisdom, uh, which is often female in the Bible. It is a separate entity from the speaker, but has its own creative power. And it is also depicted as a mediator between God and humanity, all of which are roles that that Christ functioned and and claimed. it is a it is a concept that's found in other philosophic traditions and in, and in Hellenistic religion, and what it does is uh, it both embodies the transcendence of God that God is different from the world, and the other phrase is the imminence of God that God is within the world that God is here among us, and it unites both of those things into this one image, which is what makes it so powerful in in John um, and so important in John. Um, and so, uh, Logos, word and world, God created the world through the word, so it's not an origin of evil. I want to say... Um, I think I'll just stop at that. Uh, I mean, all of these things above here, which you can read, are are important to this. But what I would like you to do in the ten minutes that's left, we've gotten, we've covered a lot today. Uh, I think what I would first like you to a- answer is question one, which is Craddock says of the prologue that these eighteen verses express two equally important tenets of religion. The idea that God is transcendent, which is different from the world, 
and the idea that God is imminent within the world. The prologue expresses both the distance from and involvement in the world. And so the question for you is, which of these is more central to your faith? Are you more aware of or relate more to God's transcendence and majesty, separateness from the world, or God's presence within the world? Um, when have you experienced God's transcendence as positive? When have you most felt God's imminence, presence with us? And does John help you hold these two together? So talk about those for 10 minutes. Yeah, so have you ever experienced it as positive? Because I do all the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Do you understand the question? Everybody understand the questions? All right. Go for it. Go for it. Thank you for your participation. If you're going to the hymn fest, enjoy it tonight. Uh, it's a good. It'll be a good thing. Um, you read about eight more chapters in John for next week, and then the week after that, you don't have any homework because we're going to do a, uh, it's a. It's a. It's a presentation I do that tries to bring all four gospels together. It's really just Jesus as Messiah, and a good time for question and answers and all that. So. So let's close with a prayer and then everybody go their way. So let us pray. Dear God, we do ask, uh, we do give you thanks for this study, for these these conversations. Uh, We ask that they drive us into a deeper understanding of your creation, of who we are, of where we have lived up to our created being and where we have fallen short and that we are brought into a deeper understanding of our own faith and our responsibility for this world. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you all. See you. See you. See you. See you. See you.